everyone, James here. So due to a combination of technical difficulties, Canada Day, 4th of July weekend, and personal obligations, we were unable to record the July edition of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. So that will be delayed by one week, unfortunately. But in the meantime, in order to avoid skipping a week, we decided it might be fun to dig up one of our old demos that we recorded before we did the official launch of the podcast. So this one, recorded in late 2020, is about some of our favorite films and our least favorite genres. Again, we apologize for the delay, and after this episode, we will get back to our regularly scheduled programming. But in the meantime, enjoy this demo. That was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. Um, it's me, Andreas. You know who it is. And I'm joined by our usual gang of misfits, Rachel and James. How are we all doing? Doing okay. Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, it's... Uh, Weird times. It's the end of 2020, which feels like it's the end of 2029. It's been that long, but we're almost there. We're almost at the end of the worst year in our recent memory, and we're going to enjoy it, basically. We're going to find the positive and the negative. So by doing that, I mean we're going to take our least favorite genres in this episode and pick out one of our favorite films, something that we genuinely like. And it can't be like a guilty pleasure unless it is, but like, you know, something that we look at and it's like, maybe I've been all wrong about this genre. You watch a few more films, you confirm that you were right all along, but this particular film or films stand out to you. So um, we all ready to talk our favorite films of our least favorite films. Absolutely. I mean, the minute you had suggested it, I was all ready to go. I was like, all right, know exactly what mine is. Sounds like you should speak first, then. Exactly. Go for it. Uh, all right. I guess I'll go first. Um, as far as least favorite, I'd have to say comedies are probably my least favorite. Really? The reason being, it's almost like fast food. Like, it's good when you have it, but then after, you realize that it probably wasn't a good idea. At least for me personally, it's also one of those things where it's like, it's always the first thing people suggest when like a group gathering and watching a movie. And it's just the furthest thing from my mind to think of first. And it's also, it kind of has to do with comedy. Comedy for me kind of falls flat early 2000s and on because, well, one early 2000s was all the rom-coms that were just terrible but also, I think it just, there is too much stock put in, like, shock humor and, you know, mostly visual humor. It it do, You don't have, like, the kind of, I don't know, the kind of humor I like is the kind of things where it's, like, you know, it's more clever than it is, like, outright, like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, like, instead of toilet humor, you like, you know, something with, like, wit or sarcasm, so more, like, uh you know, a neurotic Woody Allen as opposed to um, Adam Sandler getting kicked in the nuts. Well, no, actually, uh, I actually do enjoy Adam Sandler, but I think it's more early Adam Sandler. Back when he was tolerable. There, there are certain jokes in a lot of those early films that like really hit. Like there's a, what was it, Billy Madison, uh, the scene where he like puts water in his pants to make it look like, you know, hey, peeing in your pants is cool. And then there's the only Mm-hmm. Yeah, being your pants is cool, consider me Miles Davis. And I'm just like, that is a really smart line. But also, like, in the 90s, it was like, you know, the actor vehicle comedies were okay because they, you know, these comedians were actually talented. And they, you know, they knew what they were doing, they knew their audience, and they pulled it off. 
But, you know, nowadays I think it's, you know, and I think there there is some saving grace. I'd say with Jed Apatow to an extent, though sometimes his crew can be a little annoying. Like, I can't stand Pineapple Express. And I know so okay. many people who love that movie. And I'm just like, why this movie isn't even funny. The best part of that movie for me was uh, Rosie Perez. But that's because I just happen to like Rosie Perez. But for okay, the so most part. The movie that she's in, technically. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, there are there are you know comedies along from that crew. Like you know, I mean, I understand why Superbad is loved, and you know, it's something it, that I'll enjoy watching from time to time. But you know, and then I'd say Bridesmaids hit for me the first time, but after that, I can't stand it because it's one of those things where you know a certain group of people like to quote that movie too much. Oh, I can think of a few comedies time. that have suffered from that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think. Um, I think one thing uh, I remember there's one comedy where I didn't care for most of the movie, but there's one joke in it that I liked. And it was um, the movie neighbors that one with uh, who's in that oh, Rose, Rose Byrne. Byrne and Seth Rogen and uh, Seth Rogen, oh, Zach Efron, the, uh, and I remember, I think, I think I saw that in theaters, but the funniest joke in that whole movie was the frat house has a Robert De Niro party and they're all dressed up as characters played by Robert De Niro. And, uh, one of them goes, hua And he's like, that's that's Al Pacino. That's not Robert De Niro. And then the second part of it was um, there's one black dude, and he's dressed like Samuel L. Jackson's character from Jackie Brown, and he states that's who he is. And I just thought that was the funniest thing because it's one of those things that's like not everybody's going to really get that unless you know that movie. Yeah, Jackie, the guy with the, I don't remember his name, but he's got like, got like the really long uh, braid, and he's like it, like always dressed like white. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd have to say, um, as far as comedies go, I'll have to mention a guilty pleasure of mine is watching Pauly Shore movies. Oh, yeah. Oh, but, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, that or or Rob Schneider movies, because he was just Pauly Shore for the early 2000s. But I'd have to say, if I had to pick a favorite, I have to go with Hot Fuzz. Well, that that's a great that's comedy. a wonderful though. movie. Mainly yeah. because Edgar Wright is a very talented filmmaker. He does a lot of like kind of really odd stuff in his movies, but just there's just nothing about that movie I can complain about. I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, Simon Pregg and Nick Frost are forever one of the best duos ever in a movie. I'll watch anything they're in just because, you know, their chemistry together, their comedic timing, but also the fact that, it, you know, it's a satirical look at action films, but it almost does action better than those action films. I mean, right down to the technical aspects. I think, like, you know, the camera work and the editing was just always on point, you know, for something that probably shouldn't have been as good as it was. But also, this the the way the story plays out and they do the big reveal is very much in line with the really offbeat British humor that is found throughout. You know, you know you're fine. It's, you know, secret society cult thing, but, it's, you know, it's all these weird things they're killing people for. It's, you know, it's just so nutty. And then we find out, you know... Nick Frost character, his dad's in charge of it. That just that just makes it all the better because it's that other twist where it's like, oh, now he's got to go against his dad. And then uh, Nick Frost's character, his uh, obsession with action flicks. And when uh, <laughs> he pulls out, he's like, you want to Point Break or Bad Boys 2? And he's like, do you want to know which one I prefer? He's like, no, which one do you watch first? And I'm just like, where do you find characters like that? My uh, One of my all-time favorite jokes in any film is when... Um Simon's character, uh, Officer Angle, or Angel, really, um, he's uh, 
busting up a, a bunch of underage drinkers at a bar, and he goes, you, when's your birthday? November 22nd. What year? Every year. <laughs> and it's just one of my <laughs> all-time favorite jokes. Um, it's Well, Edgar Wright is fantastic, and he obviously works with great editors all the time. I don't, I'm not sure if it's the same editor or not, but um, his beat is fantastic. So if you watch something like uh, Baby Driver, obviously it's a very musical film and it's always in time with the music, like the cuts and everything. And I think that film was uh, severely robbed of a best editing Oscar, but go back to this. What's important in comedy is timing and he's got it in spades. He's a filmmaker that's very, aware of exactly how much breath each moment needs, whether it's a bunch of dynamic cuts or if it's like a nice long passive moment to create a more awkward joke. Um, Hot Fuzz really is like, I remember when I saw when I was young, it just left such an impression on me. Like what the hell did I just watch? I had the same reaction as you. This is too good to be what it is. But then I got more familiar with the Cornetto trilogy, which at the time as a duo because of uh, Shaun of the Dead, eventually the World's End came out. Uh, but more familiar with Edgar Wright overall. And yeah, Hot Fuzz is one of my favorite like straight up comedies I've ever seen. And I, I, I like I can't dispute that at all. Rachel, what do you think? Um yeah, I would agree that it's a very strong overall. Um I will admit I'm rather more partial to Shaun of the Dead in that trilogy. And it oh, was interesting fine. when you were talking about timing, because what instantly popped to mind was the one where they were killing the zombies with uh they were hitting them with pool cues while Clean played or Queen played in the background. And just that is the most well timed sequence of movement I've seen with actors in a movie. It was phenomenal. And it's a very, very brief shot, but it really stood out for me. Uh, how would you say the other two films, for James, would you say the other two films hold up for you as well as Hot Fuzz? Well, I I still have yet to see the third in that trilogy. I've seen Shaun of the Dead, and I, th- I think it holds up well. I think I just, I think it has to do with, like, what I very much appreciated it. I think the zombie thing does get kind of old. Yeah. Um, especially looking back now. Yeah. but I mean, it's still great, but l- looking at his work, there's a reason that Scott Pilgrim worked specifically with him behind the helm of that. Like, I don't think any other director would have been able to do Scott Pilgrim and ha- it actually like make sense like he did. I mean, it, it just because it, it, it had all the elements that it you know show in his prior films, but you know Michael Sarah was the star of it, and I think that was just the perfect pair because I mean that movie needed to be awkward, and what better an actor to portray awkward than Michael Sarah? Awkward, but also very aware of what it's trying to do. Like, the whole video game thing, whilst also referencing the original source material, um, and trying to make it like a, like a manga, comic kind of essence as well, but you know, balancing all three of those, but especially the video game thing, which I feel like a lot of filmmakers, and don't get me wrong, Edgar Wright exploited that gimmick in spades but i feel like other filmmakers might have hit upon the same notes often and really drove your head into the ground with them whereas there was always fresh new easter eggs and things that were happening in scott pilgrim because i think uh, edgar wright yeah he's he's just fantastic it's also uh hot Fuzz is also one of the ones that's like i would never get tired of watching and that that's just where it is for me it's you know i can watch it any time of any day and it just yeah, it's it's just one of those ones where it's like it will always stick in my memory as something that I'm fond of, as opposed to you know you know those movies you go back and you're like, why did I like this? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting that you tell me how how well it holds up. I've only seen it once, and uh, of course, the first time you're all about the big reveal. So I'm I'm very interested to see how it will go on a second watch and with all the little clues in there. Well, it also doesn't date itself. Mm-hmm. That's that's the important thing. Like, if a film doesn't date itself, it's it, that's where the mark is for me. Is you know, it may have a certain references that are dated, but it it's it doesn't hold it back from being something that's timeless. Yeah, and I fully implore you to to revisit it because, again, for a comedy of its nature, it really is too good for itself. You can spot the clues from a mile away, but they're like any great mystery film where it's like it's a it's a rewarding experience to be able to spot the stuff from a mile away, and it kind of just doesn't come out of nowhere like something else that's a little bit more half baked would. So I would absolutely recommend seeing it again plus it just doesn't stop being funny like it makes me laugh so hard unlike a lot of films where you've seen them once you know what jokes are coming my friends and i quote this like the one revelation towards the end um and they have like the swear jar and every time sergeant Ang- oh, yeah. Sergeant Angel <laughs> keeps swearing he's like, he's like you know so-and-so was effing murdered thank you daddy because like every time he swears they, he he puts a coin in for him like an offering Oh, it's it's just beautiful. But I have a feeling, because I know your taste, Rachel, that comedies are not your least favorite. But I am curious as to what is your least favorite. When you suggested this, the first thing that came to mind for me was the Western. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't expect that because you like a lot of classic stuff. It's true, but um, my my dad's favorite genre is the Western. And so there was always a cowboy movie playing in the background. And I just found them all so repetitive and kind of outdated. They're from a genre that really doesn't play that much anymore. And then especially the messages get more and more problematic as time goes on. So it's just a genre that really bores me. And I can barely ever sit through a western movie i know there are good examples as in any genre but it's just not one i'm going to seek out if i'm looking for a movie night i basically put up with them if my dad wants to watch something um that said i'm we're gonna go back to 1962 uh to a movie that was coming towards the end of the era of westerns as well as late in the careers of john wayne james stewart and john ford i know anybody know which movie i'm talking the man who shot Liberty Valance. That is yeah. a classic. Please share with us why. I know why, but please share with us because it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a sort of breakdown of the Western genre in one movie. It's coming in an era when that genre is winding down. People are looking back on it. And so you've got John Wayne. He's this tough guy, sort of hero of the West, the old fashioned style, shoot first, ask questions later. And then you've got Jimmy Stewart, who is this, he's a lawyer, I believe, and he comes into town and he wants to run the town and uh, with law and government and education and all the things that are civilizing, quote unquote, the West. But meanwhile, this criminal Liberty Valance is stalking the town. And so Jimmy Stewart wants to control him with the law. And John Wayne says the only thing to do is shoot him. And so the heart of the movie is the conflict between these two men. And of course, they're fighting over a woman, too. And... It's all about that side of the West slowly petering out. And then, yeah, the legend of the West that lives on. I won't spoil how. I love how you said that it's the end of the Western because it is, but it isn't. Revisionist Westerns were right around the corner. But the classic Western with, as you said, 
John Wayne, um, Ford as a director. Black and white shots with covered wagons. Well, yeah, exactly. You've got that type of, of Western, because around the corner was Sergio Leone. Um, you know, you had acid Westerns. El Topo was 10 years later. Um, you had a lot of strange stuff happening, especially with the Spaghetti Western, but the classic American Western was wrapping up. And I wouldn't even call this a revisionist one, even though it clearly is so very different from a lot of Westerns because it's nice and gradual. It really is more about the politics. And as you said, the the character relationships with one another more than anything. And then um, without spoiling, because I feel like James, you have not seen this, correct? I have not. It's really good. I would strongly suggest it. it. Basically, I would argue two-thirds of the film is built up to an entire act of open-endedness, and I don't want to say how, but basically, how did we get here? Okay, and it's kind of like a vantage type thing with, I don't want to say too much. Rachel knows what I'm talking about, and... It's just a great setup to a type of thing that you don't really see in Westerns often, where it's kind of like everything is, no pun intended, black and white. You know exactly who the outlaw is and, and who the, the, the Lone Ranger is and exactly what happens. Um, it's nice to have like a lot of mystique in a classic Western where you really are kind of sitting there going like, okay, well, what's, what is it? What's the truth? And it's just an excellent film. I highly recommend it. And so does Rachel, it sounds like. Yeah, the movie really considers the roles that these archetypes play and then throwing the Jimmy Stewart and his sort of modernizing influence into it really just throws a wrench not only into the town and the story, but into the whole idea of the West. And it, it's really kind of a goodbye letter in some ways. Yeah, for the f- filmmaker, for both stars, um, which... Uh, Jimmy Stewart did some westerns, but it's really John Wayne who, whenever he stepped out of a western, was just terrible. But inside of a western, was known as like the lone face of the classic western in America, and it really is. As you said, a goodbye letter done extremely well from three American greats. So it's a must. And what's funny is that Stewart and Wayne would reunite again ten, no, seventeen years later in the shootist. And it's about the literal death of Wayne's character, but in real life, Wayne himself was dying and all the actors were creaky older versions of themselves. So in a way, it's a sort of spiritual successor to Liberty Valens. Wait, that's that's crazy. I've never even heard of this. The Shootist? Yeah, it's it's all about John Wayne slowly dying and leaving his legacy. And Stuart plays his doctor in this one. And it's just, it's really, that one's about the final decline so that it's related to Liberty Valens in that way. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that, that's crazy. That one I've never actually heard of. I'm going to have to check that one out. And uh, James, you know what you got to check out. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I've always, I always really appreciate films that are always like mark an end of an era, especially when it's obvious. Like, uh, actually, like, I didn't think about it until Andres, you wrote about it, how um, Chinatown is uh, almost like a farewell to like classic noir. But it's also like the surge. It's almost like the surgence of neo-noir and like how it kind of took on a different approach while still kind of keeping the mystique of and mystery of those older films. Yeah. Especially like literally right at the beginning. Uh, one of the first things you see is um, I don't remember the character's name, but uh, you know, he finds out that his wife's cheating on him and 
he breaks a set of Venetian blinds and it's like, how metaphorical can you get? So, I mean, that's, that's truly like destroying a, a, a film noir trope and then trying to venture forth into new territory. But speaking of new territory, I guess it's my turn. So, um, I do love Westerns. I do love certain types of comedies. I won't say all, but I, if I had to pick a least favorite genre, and I've got to be specific here, when I say romantic comedies, I have to be very specific as to what time period I refer to. I think Golden Age Hollywood is amazing with rom-coms. I think the 60s is amazing with rom-coms. I'm, I'm referring more so to the type that I grew up on, so like the 80s and 90s and 2000s. The ones that would have been contemporary with you. Exactly, exactly. Um, there are a lot where the same formula, but also not done too well, and they rely too heavily on, you know, the the, the big names. Basically, half of Matthew McConaughey's career in the two thousand. I was just that type say. of stuff is what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, like How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, uh, Fool's Gold, but there's one. And I, I'm, like, ashamed to say this because it almost feels like a must for a lot of people, no matter what cinema circles you're a part of. There was one that I only watched, like, a year or two ago. And my girlfriend, who loves, like, the 80s, was like, how have you not seen this? You need to see this. And I got around to it. And I'm not a, I'm really not a big fan of the director um, or this type of rom-com, but I have to say... I really, really enjoy When Harry Met Sally by Rob oh, Reiner and yeah. um, Nora Ephron. I just, the way that it kind of spaces out, they're not even memories, and it makes it explicitly clear. It's just time, where every time that Harry meets Sally, um, whether it's them getting on each other's nerves or meeting on down the road, and just all of these circumstances and the the chemistry based frustration between the two of them and then they're trying to kind of work things work things out but they're still platonic um you know it's just that that balance between obviously Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan um as the aforementioned titular characters plus you have some small um small supporting roles from like one Carrie Fisher for instance but it's just it's it's witty enough. Obviously, I knew the I'll have what she's having scene, but uh, aside from that, I went in relatively blind. And uh, it's witty enough, but it's just how emotionally resonant it is. And I also love that it doesn't go too headfirst into schlockiness, and it does just the right amount. For instance, like the New Year's scene and the running theme of couples being documented talking to the camera and you still know where it's going to go, but it's still done so beautifully. And I've got to say like out of all of the contemporary, and I don't mean like the recent rom-coms because there's a lot of recent stuff like uh, the big sick, for instance, which are really, really good. So I, specifically like eighties, nineties or two thousands, because I think rom-coms are having a bit of a resurgence, but in that little block blockade of rom-coms um, when Harry met Sally is one of the finest ones I've seen. Absolutely, 100% agree. Uh, to me, the characters just grow so believably over the course of the film. They're they're pretty young when they start out, and that 
growth of their maturity really does come across as convincing, unlike in some movies where they have these really contrived epiphanies and things like that. Yeah, James, have you seen this one or? I don't know. I might have. If I have, it's probably been a long time. Like, it sounds vaguely familiar. But again, I haven't seen a lot of Rob Reiner movies. Like, the, I think the only one I know for sure I've seen is This Is Spinal Tap. Oh, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Which, by the way, I feel like is uh, is a is almost too smart of a movie to be someone's debut. Well, I would also place a lot of that onus on, like, Christopher Guest and Harry Shear and a lot of the a lot of the people who participate in the movie as well. But yeah, that's yeah, true. It's unfortunate. It's, it is unfortunate because Rob Reiner, uh, when I was doing my decades project and I was watching a lot of stuff in the eighties, whether I've seen it already, like the princess bride, or I was discovering it for the first time. I hate to admit it, but stand by me. Um, I was discovering this like, Oh my God, do I actually like Rob Reiner? But uh, <laughs> he unfortunately took like a really big nosedive uh, eventually. Uh, particularly with films like North and stuff. But when he's at his best, yeah, he's a little conventional, but I think it's who he works with that allows the film to shine. So, and I don't mean this in a petty way. Like, I don't like Rob Reiner, so this isn't his movie. But in the same way I'd say that about Spinal Tap, I'd say when Harry Met Sally, if it wasn't Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal's film, I would argue it's Nora Ephron's and her writing, which is just fantastic. Yeah, like uh, Crystal and Ryan really absolutely sell it, but I would definitely say Efron is the one at the heart of it. Yeah, so it it, it truly is worth watching as well. Um, that that's basically it. Uh, yeah, do we have any? I guess since we have a bit of time, are there any genres that we hate so much that we couldn't even like begin to think of a positive? film that we could take out of it do we do we really hate despise any genre that much i don't know i don't think i hate any specific genre that much and i think any genre can have a good example that almost anyone would admit is a good movie right i'm I'm totally on the same page as both of you um i just know that there are some uh some film friends of mine who are like no i absolutely can't stand x y and z like granted i'm not the biggest action fan but every now and then there's a mad max fury road or uh, The Road Warrior, which is also Mad Max, I guess. But, um, you know, Christmas is coming up, so Die Hard's pretty good, too. Uh, I honestly think cinema is so versatile that even the, the corridors that you don't like to venture down a lot will lend some shining moments that you just can't ignore. It's also sometimes difficult to define what a genre is. Like when James said comedy, I immediately thought, well, what kind of comedy? Is there a kind of comedy that James likes better or something like that? And you had to go very specific with rom-coms. Um, one thing that popped into my head was the biopic as you were just talking. And I think the biopics really played out and kind of dull now. But again, can we call that a genre? <laughs> I, I think we can. And uh, I remember reading an interview with Quentin Tarantino and him explaining his hatred for it. And he says, all it is is Oscar bait. There is no reason anybody should be doing these movies. And you know, I kind of agree. I don't think there aren't really a lot of biopics that I ever thought were really great. And if they are, they're probably like things like that um a ten hour Jackson five one that would always be syndicated on VH one that I really enjoyed just because it was something I would watch on the weekend all day as a kid, just for no reason at all other than just to sit around and watch TV because I had nothing better to do. I don't like the people they're doing them on as of lately because 
they're not approaching it right. Like I just didn't bother seeing the the queen one. Do you mean Bohemian Rhapsody or or anything about no, the Bohemian royal Rhapsody? Yeah, gotcha. I didn't. Yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody. I didn't. I didn't bother with that because you know I just assumed it would be mediocre. It kind of was. Rami Malek was really good though. Also for Rami Malek, I think it'd be like borderline pointless. Well, my problem is that you know when it was first announced, they were doing it and they wanted Sasha Baron Cohen. I was like, okay. Yes. But then they revealed that Queen didn't like the remaining members of Queen didn't want to do the kind of movie he did. They wanted to do like a family friendly kind of like, you know, toned down version. And he wanted to like, okay, let's like get to the really good stories of the band, you know, the really weird stuff. And like, you know, I think there's just a lot of opportunity to do something really great. And they just, you know, it just kind of fell off. Also, wasn't Brian Singer originally the director for that? Before he he got was, booted. and I think he did quite a bit of a finished product. Which, how that guy is not cancelled, I'll never know. But, like... Right! I don't understand that! Like, he still can just do whatever he wants. It's like, you know there's so many accusations against him. Like, it's, it's it's, like, it keeps piling up! I know. It's it's really screwed, but to go back to the biopic thing, it's unfortunate. David Bowie, like that's who it is. Oh, yeah, I can't. Like, no. It's the the Stardust one. Um, from what I've heard, it's a complete waste of time. So as a Bowie fanatic, enough to want to get a tattoo of, of the Black Star, I'm not going to do it. Um, but what I will say is uh, it's unfortunate because there are biopics, recent and old, that are exemplary. Like The Elephant Man by David Lynch is a big example. Um, a recent example is Love and Mercy. Uh, Love and Mercy, the Brian w- Wilson of the Beach Boys, that biopic was just sublime. That's one I've been um, meaning to check out because I heard that one's really good. Oh, it, it is a must. And, you know, you're always going to have biopics that, and, you know, you have, like, ones that kind of are daring, but they're also by the numbers, like the Miracle Worker, um, the one about Helen Keller learning how to how to communicate with her teacher, um, which I think is excellent. Uh, but it's still conventional, but it's excellent. But yeah, there are too many that rely on the same old formula. And it's basically somebody related it to reading Wikipedia. And it is. It really is. Like if you watch The Iron Lady or, oh God, uh, Ra- Rachel, you love the Oscars. How many of these have we had? <laughs> like a lot. I once read a list of people who've won Oscars for playing members of the British royal family. And it was very, very long. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Specifically that. Oh, okay. So I guess Gary Oldman, Darkest Darkest Hour was so mediocre. And when I got all of those Oscars, I watched it again because I thought I missed something. And I said, no, it's actually worse this time. Like, I don't understand. But then on the other hand, when you compare, say, oh, what was the one that came along? There was a biopic. Dunkirk? Of, no. Oh, oh um, The Queen, um, the 2006 one with Helen Mirren. Oh, the Helen Mirren. Yes. I find that a fine movie because I felt that the people making the movie really believed in the story and believed in the person that they were telling to us. So they gave this really round character and they did the right thing in just crystallizing it to that one moment of her life and not trying to tell a long era. But that's 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 actually a really good point because if I think of a lot of biopics or biographical pictures that work, for instance, like The Social Network or um the big short or specifically if i had to okay a really old example is young lincoln with with henry fonda 
Yeah. These are moments that are either fixated on an event or a chapter in somebody's life. Like the young Lincoln, you don't see him grow up. He doesn't get assassinated. Like when, um, when Spielberg did Lincoln and it had to cut to the assassination, it's like, isn't this long enough? Like we, we, we know what happens to the guy. We don't have to show everything. And it just didn't lend anything to the story. I don't think like we know what happens a title card would have sufficed, but in the Henry Fonda one, way back in the 40s, or 30s actually, it was in the 30s, um, it's literally just him practicing law when way before he was into politics, and it's like, that's really cool, and it's so focused and so um, done so right that it's enticing the entire time, where so many other biopics are like, like Bohemian Rhapsody, Hey, I got an idea. Let's do We Will Rock You. Hey, I got another idea. Let's do We Are the Champions. So, like, I saw how they come up with these songs, guys. It just doesn't happen like that. <laughs> yeah, I also don't like biopics when um, I happen to know the history very well and they just get things wrong. Like, uh, when I saw Straight Out of Compton, I was kind of disappointed because I was like, that's wrong. That didn't happen. I know that didn't happen. This is what should have happened. And it just it, it just bothers you. It's like when you know the story and it's just like, oh, you guys could have done something really cool, but you took it to this place. To me, there's a difference between changing the details and changing the spirit of a, of a, of a historical moment. And I know that can be really malleable, but um, if, if they have to streamline the story a little, I don't think that's a big deal, but it's when they fundamentally change the background of it that it really gets to me. Yeah, I actually did an article not too long ago about this type of thing where, like, in the social network, I feel like it lends to this story that um, Aaron Sorkin's trying to write about uh, digital relationships and uh, business partnerships in, uh, in, the, in the Internet age. But if you take something like, well, in the article, one of my examples was Patch Adams, where they took this guy who was killed by one of his patients and made him a romantic interest to the Robin Williams character, I just think that's a, a grossly insensitive. Like, first off, the film is not great. Secondly, you know, these types of decisions aren't just infactual, which uh, it, it happens a lot of biopics. And if they, as you said, Rachel, if they add to the story, I'm okay with it. Um, but in this case, like, yeah, there are things that are just so disingenuine, but also kind of slimy with what they're trying to say about their subjects. And um, Straight Outta Compton was quite... I, I did like the film. Um, it was quite inaccurate. Although, uh, you know, all of the, the references to Suge Knight being as crooked as he is, uh, very subliminal, but I did appreciate them, so... Well, yeah, I mean, there, there were definitely some moments that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed. Speaking of biopics, uh, Netflix, I think... Aren't they releasing Mank tomorrow? Yes. Is that tomorrow? That's tomorrow. Yes. Excited. Yes, it is. I'm so stoked. I've been waiting too long for another Fincher film. But are you caught up with Citizen Kane? I'm telling you, watch it first. Oh, yeah. I plan on watching it first. But uh, the thing that I just, I'm excited for is, you know, he's been trying to get this movie made for what, like 25 years or something like that? And it's a screenplay his dad wrote. So. You know, I saw the trailer and how it looks, and I'm like, okay, I definitely have to watch this ASAP because it's just uh, the perfectionism that Fincher displays is one of the few instances where I think it's actually warranted because he just 
it's like he can't not knock it out of the park. Well, don't say that. That's jinxing it. Oh, no, no. It's David Fincher. He can do no wrong. Well, I, that I don't know about. But uh, with uh, with this film, obviously I've not seen it. I'm going to be watching it, believe me. But once again, why is it getting good reviews? Because it's not the life story of Herman J. Mankiewicz. It's strictly this point in time when they're working together on Citizen Kane. And Mank and Orson Welles are butting heads. So it's perfect. It's not a biopic as much as it is a snippet of somebody's life. Well, also like uh, David Fincher said, uh, his casting of uh, Gary Oldman as Mank, he said he was more focused on getting the actor who could portray it instead of getting someone who just looked like him, which I thought it kind of reminded me of how um, the Steve Jobs movie with um, Michael Fassbender. He doesn't look like Steve Jobs, but that was Steve Jobs on that screen. Like I couldn't imagine any other actor. Like I remember when they did uh, the, the other one that I missed with Ashton Kutcher and everyone was like, this is awful. I was like, yeah, he kind of looks like him, but I'm not going to give him that much credit as an actor because it's Ashton Kutcher. I mean, he he does what he does, and he's had a very successful career, but I wouldn't have given him a role of that much weight. Yeah, it it wasn't a great film. But once again, why did the the Danny Boyle one work? Because it's snippets. I think that's the, the key here. To make good biopics, you just got to have them focused. Don't try to trot along an entire life And the Miracle Worker, what does that work? We don't see Helen Keller's entire life. We see her learning to communicate. That's literally it. She's a kid the entire film. I think we should work on a biopic because clearly we have it figured out, guys. (laughs) What do you think? Well, the question is what? (laughs) Uh, So we got to think of a snippet of somebody's life. And this is where we could end end on. Let's collaborate. Who do we want to tell a story of? No, it has to be uh, about Pink Floyd and the making of Dark Side of the Moon. Specifically Dark Side of the Moon. Why? Specifically What's interesting Dark about Side that? of the Moon. Because it's... Honestly, I'd have to say it's one of the only albums that I could actually enjoy all the time. Because as much as people love them, their discography isn't amazing. No, they have, a, At least they have me. great albums, but I wouldn't say all of it is. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say all of it is. But I, I think it's just... It's one of those rare albums where you can tell like the recording of it probably was an event like no other. Cause especially it's like you haven't seen, it's like a band that was as collaborative as they were. It's like, you know, where multiple members of the band would sing. And then, you know, they were experimenting with different recording techniques. Or what about uh, the recording of which you were here where Sid Barrett came in and nobody recognized him. Oh yeah. <laughs> or did you just Sid Barrett? Well, but then, then again, we're going back to the his life thing. Whereas, if it's specifically that moment in time where the film allows you to fill in the rest, where what happened to this guy, and he just shows up, and there, and they reconnect for the first time. This man, mentally gone, completely broken, and this band that he founded succeeding without him over the course of an afternoon. I think that's a film. You know, I, I'm fine with people doing whatever they want at this point, as long as they don't try to do prints. Unless it is Spike Lee. Uh, oh, yes, he's he's allowed. Honestly, I think Spike Lee should do it, but it should be his early life starting music up until he gets signed. And that's all we have to do. We don't need to do anything else. Just tell the beginning story. Which we will wrap up on this note. Spike Lee 
did the Malcolm X film, which goes against everything we just said. It shows all of his entire life, and he still knocked it out of the park. So Spike Lee's clearly one of the best to do it if he was able to do that. But let's do our film recommendations. Rachel, do you have any picks of the week that you would like to share? Any uh, hidden gems, obvious picks, what have you? Um, recently I've been going back over my Swedish films and this week, uh, Sweden chose a movie by the filmmaker Amanda Kernel. Um, and I haven't seen this new one yet, but it's being submitted for best international film. I'd like to talk about her last film, which was called Sami Blood, Sami Blood in English. And it's the story of a young woman and who's a member of the Sami people in, in an indigenous people in Northern Europe. And, their children were taken away like Canadian children in residential schools. Um, and it's the story of a girl going through this. And so it's this little known part of history, especially to people outside of Sweden. And it really focuses in on the journey of this girl and the young actress is phenomenal. And it's just a really well done movie. And it should have been nom- sent in and nominated the year it came out, but it wasn't. They sent the square instead. Uh, which I like the square. I actually really like the square, but I'm curious about this film, actually, and I trust your judgment on Swedish on Swedish cinema. You think it's better? Oh yeah, yeah. It it's completely unlike any other movie I've seen, to be honest. Amazing! I'm gonna have to check that one out. Um, James, do you have any recommendations? Um, we'll go with uh, the film "Down by Law" by Jim Jarmusch. Okay, one of an early cuts of his. Okay, why? One, because it was only shown the year it was released and did not turn up again until it ended up in the Criterion Collection. But also, it's there's just it's just a really good film. I don't think there's anybody who does deadpan better than him, and it works here. It's just a story of like three guys who break out of jail and they're on the run. And it's mostly just, you know, how they interact with each other. And it has his, you know, usual suspects. It's got John Lurie and Tom Waits in it, so and Roberto you Benigni. Know. Oh yeah, yeah, him too. And uh it's just, you know, there's just <laughs> there's one specific there's one specific scene where uh one of them started saying you scream, I scream, we all scream for ice cream and then they do it in a round or or they start chanting it and then it just keeps getting louder and louder and it's just going nowhere. But it's just one of those points where it's like it's just so ridiculous that it's just you can't not laugh at it, but also like think it's a really important part of this. It almost tricks you into thinking it's significant, which I think a lot. I think a lot of his choices do that. It's when they're locked up in the prison, right? And uh, it just kind of like yeah. starts to echo throughout the entire cell, like the entire um, penitentiary. <laughs> yeah, and then and, um, and then them breaking out. Uh, it's so subtle too. They break out, and it's like it's almost like. Um, Honestly, I'd almost liken it to the Grand Illusion, where they just I sort know. of break out, and it's like <laughs> it's not eventful. Their escape isn't eventful, and it's like they don't get caught; they just sort of escape. And it's like, oh, it, it almost makes you think breaking out of jail is easy. Or it's just like, it's how just, the you know, hell did we do this? <laughs> yeah, but it it just has all those touches that you know make his films great. Just like how deadpan it is, and just I don't. I think I think his relationship with the actors, as far as the way he has them like you know portray their characters is always just great you know i mean i don't i've I've seen his entire discography up until i still have to see the dead don't die but i have it but just you know just 
all just all his movies just really interesting. Like, um, was it Patterson? I don't know what it is about Adam Driver, but he literally can do anything, and that movie proves it. To think he can do that, but also do Star Wars is like how he is good. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, uh, as for my pick, uh, I've seen this pop up a lot because. And I, I've known that this film has, has existed for a very long time, but I've seen it pop up a lot because the World Cinema Project got like a nice big release or a re-release or something by Criterion. And a lot of the groups that I follow are going crazy over it or like previous iterations that Scorsese collaborated on. Um, but I only got around and I hate to say this because it's just breathtaking. I only got around to I am Cuba the other day and it's the, um, Mikhail Kalatozov film. Uh, it's kind of split up into like four different vignettes of, um, Cuba pre revolution. Uh, so like, you know, farm life or, um, uh, young students who want to rebel and, and partake in like assassinations or terror attacks or, um, even just like the nightlife, they're all completely different stories, but the cinematography. It's gorgeous. Uh, oh my God. Uh, Sergey, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Y- you're a Savetsky. Uh, Rachel, I, you're the linguistics major here. I need your help. Uh, you're a Savetsky. There we go. Thank you. Um, I've always been a fan ever since I've seen the works of Emmanuel Lebesky or, um, you know, filmmakers like uh, Quaron or uh, Kubrick and who he collaborated with. But it almost feels like anybody who ever made like an airy film that has like a personal touch, but it also feels like the most gargantuan event on Earth was trying to rip off I Am Cuba now that I've seen it for the first time. Jesus Christ, that is one of the best shot things I've ever seen in my life. And... um I know a lot of people accuse it of being propagandistic and not really. Oh yeah. But like not really portraying uh, Cuba in the best light, which I firmly understand, but as an art film, it just blew me away. And it's now one of my favorites of the sixties and I can't recommend it enough. If you just, if you watch it without trying to take in the politics, if you watch it just as art, you're going to, be thrown out of your chair. It really is one of the most stunning films I've ever seen. I have to check that out. Now the uh, the World Cinema Project was that a re-release? I thought that was just a whole. I thought that was just another installment of it. I think that's what it is. It's an installment. Yeah, it's like the third part. I think you're right. Okay, because because I think it's an because I, I thought it was an ongoing thing. I thought this was just like the installment, of like next installment of like here's more films that he uh, he wants everybody to watch. Yeah, yeah. No, no. You're absolutely right about that. But uh, either way. Um, it has been on my radar for like 15 years, not the project, but, um, I am Cuba specifically and, oh God, I, I left it for too long. That's all I can say, but that's everything from us. Uh, that was the K cut. Now we leak into the L cut. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>